Hello and welcome to this new episode of the Fundraising Radicals podcast. I'm your host, Craig Pollard. The Fundraising Radicals podcast is about turning the world of fundraising upside down by sharing and exploring fresh, global perspectives on non-profit fundraising and leadership. These unscripted conversations with friends and colleagues old and new, ordinary and inspiring people who are fundraising and leading community projects, causes, charities and social enterprises in Asia, Africa, the Middle East and Latin America and beyond the traditional boundaries of the non-profit sector. I hope today's conversation challenges and inspires you to think differently about the world of fundraising and your place in it. I hope it helps you to reflect on your own fundraising practice and leadership. But now it's time for another dose of global fundraising ideas and inspiration. It has been my privilege to have known Steve Morigi for more than 15 years. We first met in Kibera, the informal settlement in Nairobi, in early 2008, a few days after the post-election violence. Steve grew up in rural Kenya, he studied journalism, he's worked across programs, communications and advocacy, building world-class health programs and complex partnerships, both at AMREF Health Africa and at Primary Care International, where he's now the chief executive. It has been my privilege to have walked alongside Steve on parts of his journey in global health and to have seen firsthand his impact in communities. We have also shared some adventures and hectic experiences together. I've always enjoyed Steve's ideas and his relentlessly practical focus on the things that matter right now. Whether it's advocating for localizing and decolonizing development, or how to build complex and long-lasting corporate partnerships that are grounded in values and purpose. Now, this is not a short conversation, but I promise you, if you stick with this to the end, then you'll be rewarded with some really deep insight from Steve and creative tactics for localizing development and building exceptional corporate partnerships. And you'll also find out what the most important personal characteristics are, the ones that will deliver you fundraising and leadership success. So do stick with us. Welcome, Steve. It's wonderful to be talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. Asante sana. Having said, yeah, really, really pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be having a conversation with you, Craig. Yeah, so thank you. I read, I loved your recent profile article with PCI talking about you and your motivations for getting into global health and you know where you grew up. And I was just wondering if you would be happy to sort of share that about your background. You know, where did all this sort of passion and commitment for, for global health come from? Yeah, thanks, Craig. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's, it's an interesting one. So when I look back at my own childhood and my upbringing, I mean, first of all, I mean, it's really, really, sometimes I surprise myself. I just surprise myself in terms of just the contribution I made, I've been allowed to make, you know, within global health and the health of, of populations and communities. I just went back home recently and I went back to where I spent the first five, six years of my, of my childhood with my grandmother my mum gave birth to me when she was quite young, so she was barely out of high school. And at the time, there was a, a lot of stigma around pregnancy, early pregnancy, pregnancy outside of marriage. Uh, so she, she had to leave. So she had to, she just completed her high school education, just barely, but she had to leave, right? It was, uh, um, she had to leave, she had to go to, to the city to 
fend for herself, find herself and just sort of try and make things happen. So I lived with my grandmother for those initial five, six years. My grandmother had other other children. So my, my mom was the firstborn, right? So, and there was, there was 10 of them, right? So these are my uncles and, and my aunts, but I really grew up knowing them as my brothers and sisters because they were all referring to my grandmother as mom, right? So I was doing the same. And we weren't materially well off. You know, my grandmother ha- had a bit of land, but we weren't materially well off. And I think, you know, so a couple of things. I think the fact that there were many of us and we, we grew up, we were quite tight. We were tight-knit family. I think that, in a sense, started to build this idea, um, um, not idea, but this, but this value of fairness, you know, that everybody needed a chance to have a go, that everybody needed to be listened to. Of course, there was the hierarchy of age, as, as any other, other family will have. But there was this sense that, you know, everybody has their story, everybody has their experience of the day, and everybody has their own sense of humor and understanding of the world. So I think that's where this idea of, oh, yeah, my voice you know needs to be heard just as somebody else's voice needs to be heard. So I think that's the first thing. And I think from purely from a health standpoint, you know, this is where I also started to understand that, you know, if you didn't have resources, or if you lived in a particular part of the village or the country, you know, health wasn't something that was assured to you, that if you were ill, it wasn't, there was no assurance that you would receive health care. There was no assurance that when you went to the health clinic that you would see a doctor on the day just because you're ill and you needed it. Uh, there was no assurance that if you saw a doctor and they prescribed a medication that you were assured of getting it. So, you know, there was a lot of discomfort, but maybe an unnerving, I suppose, as a child, because you're looking for a lot of assurance and certainty. I think when that's not there, you start to think, oh, what happens if I'm ill? What happens if my grandmother is ill? What happens if my uncle is ill? And I remember a, a, you know, a particular example where my uncle was really ill, right? I mean, uh, so he had malaria from what we understood after a few weeks, but he was it was it was horribly it was bad even and he was much older than us but you know his the way he was behaving was different and we were very very scared you know we were all terrified and and they had to take him to the clinic but then there was no doctor so they so they had to try and mobilize funds quite quickly to get onto public transportation to take him to a health facility and i just think yeah that was sort of seared into my brain, you know, you know, as, as, I, as I think as a kid, when things happen, sometimes they can appear very intense, you know, on reflection. So I, I suspect that's, that's how sort of my, my thirst, my yearning, my questions began. But I never really intentionally went out seeking global health. But, but of course, we can chat about that in a bit. That's, that's really interesting. Do you sort of look back where you are now as chief exec of, of, of Primary Care International, you know, global INGO, sort of look back down the mountain at where you've, you've come from and how, how does it feel being where you are today from that tough start? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a, yeah, a few things. I think it's a, it's a mixed bag. I, I think in, in many ways it blows my mind, right? So, in, you know, in many ways I'm highly, highly, appreciative of the opportunity, the opportunity to even give it a go, right? So I think in, in many ways I look back and I, and I just think, you know... But you've earned that as well, right? Yes, yes. If I put some humility to the side, I, I'd say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's been a good 
you know, 17, 18 years of being within global health, working in different countries, different continents, working with multiple partners. I think there's all there's there's that. But I think if I just think about it as as Steve, the person who just it's yeah, it's a long way from where I started. I think there's a there's a huge sense of uh, appreciation for the different opportunities for the different people that I've met because I think that's a significant part of it so the relationships that I've built over time and the doors that have been opened and this the fact that I've been allowed to be myself and to air some of these radical thoughts that I that I have right so I, th- I think there's that and then there, there's the other side of it where sometimes I feel actually there's a lot of the conversations that I've had within global health and within you know have, within the third sector, that actually I feel myself, like many other people, have a lot to contribute, purely just by virtue of understanding what the problem is and what might uh, help resolve the issues. So there's a part of me that just thinks, so like, yeah, actually, thank you so much for this opportunity because I do think I have a, I have something to say. But then the other side of that is, yeah, just really glad to be here. Glad for the support that I got for my grandmother. You know, the support that I got for for, for my mother. The you know the people that I that I met. The choices that I the few choices that were uh, intentional, but also the choices that were purely circumstantial. Accidental. You would know this, Craig, right? You know, we were in a program together. That was a complicated program, but you will you will remember that how I transitioned from our from the AMREF office in Kenya to the AMREF in Uganda was very, the intention was, wasn't was that I was going to be there for a long time, for at least for the amount of time that I spent there at the end of that. But I look back and I think some of those decisions and, and opportunities have led me to where I am. But, but I suppose, you know, like, like, like we say in Africa, you know, it takes a village, right? I mean, it, it takes a village, Yeah. you know, and I'm, and I'm just lucky that the, that the village has been extremely kind to me, right? So I have to find a way to give back. You're you're very modest because I, I I've seen you in action, Steve. You're you're a force. You're a force. I, I you know you've worked with global, you know, sort of holding your ground with massive global corporate partners like Accenture, GSK, Barclays Bank. You know these huge organisations, and I, I've sort of seen you in action with those and, and sort of engaged on the on on the program side with those. So I feel like it's it's completely earned and completely deserved. <laughs> but uh, just you mentioned sort of your transition from Kenya to Uganda and with I guess the well known in its time project, <laughs> um, <laughs> the the Katine project was uh, was ahead of its time in some ways. This was a project that involved the Guardian Media Group, a major um, UK newspaper, Barclays Bank, and AMREF program in Uganda that was really about sharing the the sort of warts and all view of international development for probably the first time, the level of coverage and the depth of coverage. What are your reflections from that? Because that was very progressive sort of 15 plus years ago. Yeah, I mean, so 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 you're you're absolutely spot on. It was extremely extremely progressive. And I think for for AMREF, kudos to them for 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 willing to expose themselves in in that way i think at the time you know a lot of organizations you know what the culture was you get funding 
you run a program, you tell the donor everything's gone great and the little that hasn't gone great, I've got a plan to resolve it, right? So it was, you know, and and, and that I suppose that was the culture when I was coming into into development, at least that that's what I found. And, and I think, as, as you say, it was progressive because this was the first opportunity and one of the first uh, organizations to say, do you know what, we'll show you what development looks like and it's not a straight line and we're dealing with with people we're dealing with communities and we we will respond to their needs and of course the idea was to try and cover the multiple uh, components of you know what a society needs you know clean water education uh, health and empowerment components or an advocacy component etc uh, and livelihoods which is you know uh, how do you ensure that you can lean into uh, what communities rely on for food and subsistence and and, and trade which absolutely phenomenal right I think looking back there was still we, we were still learning to be completely transparent right so if i you know so we, we much as we were pro- progressive i think there was an element of there was there was still a bit of a bit of fear i think it's a, it's not it's not fear but more maybe mis- misunderstanding right so i think that, uh, in terms of communication you you had the guardian coming in and we were we there was still a sense that it's a partnership so we would be having conversations but of course you know at, at the time the guardian wanted to still retain their integrity as the Guardian, like we're here to also just, you know, demonstrate to everybody how the development works. And, and, and it took time for us to, to align those two worlds, that it's just not a partnership in the way that we'd understood it before, but it was also really, uh, uh, in many ways, a, de- a development program, but also an experiment. It was a way to, sh- to, to help everybody outside of development understand how things how things things work. Yeah. I think if I if, if I was reflecting on what we could do differently now, and I think a lot has changed since, it would be just a lot more vulnerability, right? And we hear this often. We you know there's a lot of vulnerability asked being asked of from leaders. I think it, it applies to organization v- vulnerabilities. Uh, nothing has to be perfect. You don't have to agree with your partners all the time. You don't have to have all the answers all the time. You're learning as much as some of them are learning. You know, when you go into a community, you know, you have ideas. There's a lot of borrowed ideas and concepts and principles and technical things that you can bring into a program. But it's still a new community if it's the first time you're there different cultures, different ways of doing things. And that takes time. So that, you know, but I look back on it fondly. There's so much learning. There's so much learning. I think for me, as, as a person coming into development, in terms of how you manage relationships, how you build relationships, how you build trust, uh, how you also do development in a very different way. I think what we were seeing with communities, you know, there was a lot of agency because they knew uh, that the program was being constantly evaluated and there were people paying attention to it. I look back on it and I think the community had a lot more agency compared to some of the other programs that I'd seen up to that point. You know, they were able to come to the office, the resource center and say, no, this is what we want you to do with the money. We're able to reach the Guardian directly. We can write so and so and not force, but have a conversation very quickly. So, yeah, so I, I look on that quite quite fondly. What, what about you? Well, how, how does that how do you remember it? I, I, I do have that fondness for it. I, I think it was such a... I remember getting the phone call uh, when the Guardian called us and, and it was just it was just overwhelming because as AMREF, we were relatively small in the UK. 
and we were up against the, the Oxfams and the you know the big big players, and to to be awarded that and and to have that opportunity was incredibly exciting but incredibly daunting, and I don't think we really understood the implications of inviting. <laughs> a group of, of journalists who are constantly seeking stories. They're seeking sort of conflict and uh, and difference. And uh, and then you bring Barclays, <laughs> the giant bank into it, uh, and then you bring a, a, you know, an international development project and all of the, the challenges and politics and the, the logistics of delivering that and then adding so many different cultures and not, not just sort of sort of UK culture and Ugandan culture, but also corporate culture and media culture and non-profit culture. And, and that just added, that was the complexity of that. And you were, I always, you know, you were right at the sharp end of that, sort of at that sort of nexus where everybody, all of that came together. So was that a sort of formative experience for you and a sort of a you know, but and it didn't leave you thinking I'm like <laughs> there's no way I'm gonna do this again. It sort of seemed to have spurred you on into to, to, to much bigger things. No, I mean I think actually yeah, it, it was formative in, in in a sense because you know my background at the time was you know done you know uh, uh, journalism prior to that I'd done social communication I'd sort of stepped into development with a with a communication advocacy hat on anyway right and i had my own questions around what development looks like and what it could look like so i think that was a massive opportunity for me to be involved in that conversation i think the other thing that you know i understood quite quickly was just how different you know um the the, the personalities were so there was never much as we look back on it now and say you know we were in a partnership with the guardian how it felt when you were there was very much we're in a partnership with, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so because they all took a very different view yeah. of development when, you know, when, when they came in and some of them had a bit more understanding of the nuance. So it was much, much, it felt very easy to have conversations and, and some of them maybe not so much. And it, it felt that it was an opportunity for us to inform and educate, etc. So I think that was, in many ways, that was formative. The other element, of course, was just negotiating within the organization, given my background, you know, just to say, well, actually, you know, it's not enough to just say X, Y, and Z to a journalist. It's not enough to say capacity building. It means absolutely nothing. You know, it means a lot to us, but you need to really be clear on 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 what makes sense to the person who's going to end up reading, you know, whatever's up published. Uh, so, I, so I think in many ways there was that, but for me there was it was also a different culture, right? So I'd moved from Nairobi uh, at, the, at the time, I'd moved to Uganda, and then straight to Soroti for many months. So there was also an element like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm also in a different world and I'm building relationships there and I'm trying to cultivate trust from my colleagues who, you know, who thought, you know, who's, who's this guy who's come all the way from Kenya, etc. You know, we went, our office was right next to the sub-county government. So you're also building relationships with uh, with government at the same yeah. time. And yeah, and you're, you're, so you're balancing a lot of perspectives and you and we're still delivering the work, which is really is center to what Amrif does. Yeah. So in many ways, you're trying not to be in the way as you also try and manage all, the, you know, balance all these other other needs. So yeah, so in, in many ways, I think you, you you had to learn quickly. 
you had you had to learn quickly. Uh, I mean, you you will remember this. I think also in terms of just internally, there wasn't a shared understanding of what needed to happen all the time, right? So, uh, so the you know the UK office may have had had different needs to what the Uganda office had at the time. Of course, and this was politically in at the time in Amref. This was during a real shift. Uh, decisions had been taken to really shift. Uh, decision-making power, governance, finance, etc., from northern offices uh, in you know the UK, in Italy, in in Canada, and the US and Netherlands to Nairobi, and that whole transition was happening at the time, and and it was beginning those conversations. So so there were there were layers of, of sort of internal complexity as well, which which are always challenging to navigate. You sort of touched on your advocacy comms experience. I know a lot of people who will be listening to this have a deep interest in advocacy. Many see advocacy as as the future of the sector in terms of being able to leverage new resources and, and bring big, significant, systemic change. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your sort of comms advocacy and some of the some of the key things you've learned over the years doing that? So, so yeah, so just also on the, on the point that you just you just made there around the shift that was happening with AMF, I think again, just really credit to 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 the organisation, credit to to the Guardian, and credit to Barclays, and really the wider partnership. And I, I don't say that lightly. I say that on with um, you know, as I say, uh, uh, hindsight twenty twenty, right? But you can start to see that that's where the you know there was a shift in terms of shifting power. We keep saying shifting power, shifting power now, but that was a very practical way in which to demonstrate how you could do it. And it's about where the resources go. And, you know, I'm, I'm having more and more conversations now with partners and donors who keep asking the question, what does it look like? You know, you know, what, what does decolonization look like? What does shifting power look, look like? And, not, I'm not, and I'm not to, su- to suggest that it was perfect at all, because it wasn't. But I think in many ways, this idea that you can provide resources directly to the people that are most proximal to the problem is a really good place to start. And you can just start to see how that creates agency for those uh, for those stakeholders and those participants. And their voice gets louder, you know, and they position themselves differently when they sit around the table. And that's what shifting power starts to look like. Uh, to your question around advocacy, I completely agree. I mean, I think if you just look back on the last few years, the different movements, whether there's this grassroots uh, movements, you know, and they, whether they're sparked by an, uh, a particular political issue or a particular incidents, they you've got organized, you have organizations that are literally built from an event, and in six months to a year, they are a force. They're a massive organization. So I do think that I do think there's something there around just how um, uh, you know people with similar views and values can come together and rally behind an issue and really make make some changes and make make some 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 political changes and mobilize mobilize enough resources to do some really good work. And whether you're talking about the the BLM or whether you're talking about the whatever movement you, you can think of, I think it's just demonstrative of you don't need a significant structure in the name of an organization, et cetera, et cetera, for you to build momentum around an issue. I think that's my biggest learning. And I think the tools in the way that they are now, that this idea that people have access to this, what you and I are doing to share their views and project that to the world and 
uh, reach people who may have similar views and, you know, and get on a phone and, you know, and, and develop a group and a platform and just support an issue. I think that's, that's super powerful. We, we know, we, I was going to say, we, we, we didn't have that. I was going to sound like a really old, old person say, well, we didn't have that. But yeah, we, we just, 15 years ago, we didn't have that. No. And in many ways, if I, if I reflect on it, I think I might have a, I might have taken a different view when I was thinking about some of the causes that I wanted to support, you know, particularly health. 15 years ago with some of my colleagues and uh, that were also coming from the same background, which was communication and advocacy, we may have decided that, oh, no, we don't need to join an organization and be bound by certain rules. We're just going to do this ourselves. Yeah. And, but that's interesting. But that's really interesting, isn't it? What does this mean for, for the nonprofit structures? Because, you know, in, in many ways, I see organizations and their ways of working getting in the way yeah. of change some organizations are incredibly agile and, and 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 great at it and facilitating it and losing control what does it mean for the future of the sector and organizations yeah i mean i think personally i think as you as you say we, we you know completely agree i think the structures will need review right i think i think i've, I've a couple of things, right? So I think sometimes the advocacy is happening within these very massive structures. I think that's what we've seen in the last couple of years. There's a lot of shift even happening within those organizations. And those organizations are, are finding it difficult to stop that, unlike, unlike before. I think if, uh, you know, so I think that's interesting that, 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 that the change is sometimes being pushed internally. So I, I think that's quite positive. But I think more broadly, as you say, organizations that will be will have the ability to be flexible and responsive to all these things will do great, right? So if I think about the organization that I lead, Primary Care International, we're very small. One of the things that I found extremely attractive about, we're not very small, but we're small enough. What One of the things I found attractive was that, was the malleability, was this idea that actually we're going to focus more on what we the value that we add more so than the structure uh, of the of having a massive organization and delivery offices, et cetera, et cetera. It was us thinking, how can we do the same work without having to set up really massive structures that actually get in the way? How does, you know, and what we've learned is as a small organization, we're able to work to have programs over the last 10 years across 60 countries. That would have never been possible if we set out to say, oh, we you know we need to set up a, you know, what you and I may refer to as a country office, as a delivery office, as an affiliate office. You know, we we yeah. we learned quickly that actually what you know where we at, we could add the most values by working through technical partners that already have this um, this uh, infrastructure. And I think that is borrowing from that world of focusing on the issue, finding people that are, share the same values as you, that have the same mission as you, and then and, and then working working out um, on the best way to collaborate to have the most impact. So that's one end of it. But as you say, I think, you know, you can visualize a future where a lot of organizations will struggle, especially the big organizations. I have a chat, I have a chat now again with them, um, with colleagues you know, and some of them will ask me that question. Yeah, but what, you know, why, why PCI? You know, especially within the context of everything you you say around decolonization. And I said, yeah, this is where I feel, in terms of the size and the malleability of the organization, we can have change, because I've recognized that it is difficult, even with the best intentions, for big organizations to change. Right? There's so much more at stake 
so many more people to align and to, and so much more fear. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, this is it. And 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 people, I, I you know, people I, I speak to are spending so much of their time sort of navigating internal structures. So a new policy has has arrived. How do we navigate this as officers from across the global south? How you know what is the implication of this? So that I I, I feel like increasingly there's a lot less patience for for the sp- for slowness for for bureaucracy for having to be forced to sort of navigate those structures whereas an organization like PCI which is much more agile there's a sense of that it's easier and more sort of suited for the future I think I think so. I think I think so. I think, as, and as you say, it's it's, um, it's that agility. It's the agility in practical ways as well. It's the agility to respond to the issue that's uh, the most relevant right now, right? So again, massive organisations doing amazing work, but sometimes finding it difficult to respond to the issues that emerge when they're doing the work. Your mission is to provide access to clean water, etc. Great, you've done it for a really long time. You go into the, a community and maybe something else completely emerges. Sometimes it's difficult because your, your supporters and donors have known you to do this one thing. So your agility is reduced in that, in that way that sometimes you find it difficult to just uh, evolve what your interventions look like. And, you know, and, 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 that's, a, and that's a separate conversation. And, and I'm, I'm sure colleagues within the sector may feel differently. But I think for me, it's that idea around agility to respond to the issues. And uh, as they emerge, the world is changing and is changing rapidly. So being an organization that's mission-led, you do want to be responsive. That's why you exist. You do want to be responsive to these changes. And then secondly, it's about learning where things don't work and being able to evolve and yeah and be malleable and i think that's that's a significant challenge for a lot of organizations at the moment most of them with amazing intentions i say to people constantly you know don't let this pursuit of perfect strategies stop you from starting to address the problem start you know for, uh, for from acting but then of course you recognize that it's not that simple and you have conversation with like you know where people will mention oh what about the regulation some of you know yeah. what about the donors Exactly. You can have a good conversation about a donor who's not opposed to localization, for instance, but they may need to observe some regulations and some legislation that don't allow for that to happen. But, you know, you're not hearing these things come out very clearly when you have conversation. Everybody's agreeing on the wider principle. But I think we need to also have a conversation about what's realistic for some organizations. But of course, I think that means being exposed. That that means having to say that we are struggling to respond to this right now because our size or our structure or our donors or just we're not in the best place to do it. And I, I mean, I have I have conversations where people say, oh, we'll do it. But, you know, in a couple of years, I struggle with that, of course, because when you want change, you, you want change, you know, and the people waiting for the change have been waiting for a long time. They have. And this requires a whole set of difficult, challenging conversations. And I'm just thinking from the sort of fundraising angle is, you know, bringing donors along on this localization journey. You know, when you have the big institutional donors and and they hold so much weight in the sector and big organizations moving perhaps more slowly than others, they have their innovation funds, they have opportunities. But how do we take donors 
on this localization agenda? Because in many ways, they're feeling just as overwhelmed and just as sort of unsure about the future as the nonprofits that they're funding. Yeah, I completely hear you. And I recognize that that is an issue. I mean, the first argument I would be making would be just around the effectiveness of the work that you're supporting. You can look at the anecdotal evidence. You can look at the evidence that's generated by organizations. It's a lot more effective supporting the organization, individuals, grassroots that are most proximal to the problem. So if you want to be effective, if you want your interventions to be sustainable, it's a way to go. Drive across the continent, see all the boreholes that have been, you know, people have just walked away because somebody came, dug a borehole, put a massive brand on it, took pictures, shook hands, people used it, it broke down. They thought, well, that's so-and-so's borehole, we move on to the next thing. And some of it is in the communities, actually, that, that abandoned some of these structures. It was very much the sense that, did you look into whether those communities were you know, stay in the same place constantly? Did you understand the culture? Because if you didn't, you know, then you, if you had, you might have understood that they were likely to move on anyway. Look at some of them, malaria programs where a lot of mosquito nets were, were, were given to families. Again, you and I can agree, everybody can agree that mosquito nets is an impactful intervention when you're talking about malaria. But how is it being used? Did you take the time to understand, again, the culture, the dynamics of the family? So where you end up having families using it as fishing nets or, you know, or, or, or maybe the man using it yeah. uh, and, and, and the children not, because that's just... Yeah, reinforcing existing issues, yeah. Yeah, or that's just the dynamic of this idea... You know, I remember having a conversation with, with I think one of my aunts and just saying, well, I don't use mosquito net. I find it hot. <laughs> and I just didn't, I just wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't arriving at, at, at what that meant. But that was the reality, you know, that was the reality for this person. It's like, oh, no, I don't use it because it's hot, you know. And that's, this is a recent conversation. And I thought to myself, if you don't understand that by the time you're just providing this mosquito net and assuming that you money and your support has done what it needs to do, then you're losing out. So it's an effective, for me, it's an effective question. I also think the other argument that we're making is just really, you know, what you do matters and how you do it matters. And 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 there is a responsibility that comes with, with, with sometimes providing support and the intention is doesn't go far enough, right? You know, so I think there's a responsibility to ensure that you're not causing any harm, even when you're trying to do good, right? So that that's, you know, a, another element is just, yeah, much as it's you're worried, much as it's inconvenience to find different ways to work and to find different partners, and you'd rather rely on systems and partners that you already know, you have to work out whether, yeah, whether you, you, you're addressing, you're creating another problem by or perpetuating an ongoing issue through your support. And, you know, and then you have to hold yourself responsible. So, but there is no... It's not going to be easy. I mean, I, I think, and I think it's it's okay that it's not easy. I, you know, it's huge amount of discomfort, right? A, absolutely, huge amount of discomfort. It's, it's been so cozy in terms of in terms of you, if you think about the, the communications, right, from the community to the sort of country office to then then maybe the UK office, then to the donor. This sort of constant sort of flow of positive isn't everything great. That shifting to what you're talking about requires a massive shift to becoming comfortable with a huge amount of discomfort when you know hearing about the reality that the, the truth 
when things go wrong and, and just how hard things are, that's a massive shift for some donors. Absolutely, absolutely. It's 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 a significant shift, and you know, and we have to remember, you know, when we say donors, we're also referring to, you know, we're referring to people and massive institutions, and within those institutions, there will be different levels of power as well, you know, and some some maybe some of those levels understand the issue or are ready to to make the shift than others. So 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 this is why, in fairness, that you know, we have to exercise some form of patience. Having said that, I think there is. You know, the analogy is, you know, I think everybody knows that it needs to happen. I don't for one think that there's many people that don't know that the system that we've had for a long time has flaws. And if we continue down the path, it's likely to really break. I think it also just in terms of the trust, there's a break in, in trust, whether that's between donors and the third sector or just the wider public and how resources are spent or not spent. I think there is a problem. I think everybody recognizes that, right? But the analogy is, you know, you know that you might need to go to the gym and it's, you know, and it's, and it's going to suck. You might know that you need to eat better and it's great for you, but it's inconvenient because, so, you know, maybe you, you, it's just much easier to do what you do and have, you know, and just enjoy and not have to think about it, right? And, and particularly when, when there's this innate sense of, but we're doing the right thing, you know, but we're doing the right thing. And if we don't do it, if we don't support them, you know, what happens to yeah. all these people? But I keep, you know, my, 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 my quick response to that is the right to life and the right to health should not be exclusive of the right to, to dignity and respect and you know, and what makes us human. So you have you have to bring those things together. And the question, you know, when I speak to to partners and I have an opportunity to do so next week, you know, they say, you know, what do we do? You know, you you know, you say a lot of these things. What, what do we do? I said, listen, it, it's not abstract. So the first thing is just listen, listen to what people need, right? And and for a moment, suspend what you already have or what you've always done. Just listen to what people need, and if it makes you uncomfortable, that's okay right? Have a real conversation, then start asking the right questions, particularly as donors. Donors will be the greatest catalyst to this shift, more so than the third sector, because they have the resources. And there's a lot of organizations within the third sector that may want to have this change, but if their donors are not ready to support it, it will be that much slower because it's a viability question. Ask the right question. Simplify mechanisms. If you want if you know, if you're saying, you know, I've had a conversation where somebody said, "Oh, but we never get proposals from organisations and grassroots from the countries." I said, "How hard have you tried?" Yeah. What is what is your mechanism for for funding? How simple is it? Because an, a big organisation will have a big resource behind it. They'll have a big team. They can apply for funding, and if they don't get it, you know, it's disheartening. But they can deal with the loss of time and the, and, and the cost of it. A small organization, they simply cannot. If they spend a month doing that and not something else and they end up not being successful, that can really have a significant impact on, on the organization. And furthermore, do they understand what is being asked of them? So you have to think about all those barriers before you say, hey, we're not getting those applications. And if you say, well, how do you understand the barriers? Go to, question, to, to the first thing I said, listen, ask them. You know, ask them, what would make this simple for you? And then ask yourself, what will give us the accountability we need for us to feel secure that we're providing this funding? And try and bring those things closer together. But, but is, it, is it the responsibility of civil society to educate donors? 
Or do they need to be doing some of that education themselves? I think it is. I'll tell you why, right? So, I mean, and I know this one's going to be, you know, this might be contentious. I'll tell you what, I think it is because we have significantly contributed to the problem. We have significantly contributed to this misunderstanding and, and, and miseducation. For years and years and years, we have simply gone with the flow. And for those of us that have been successful and have been benefactors of the whatever the process is, we have sustained it. If anything, it has made sense because it has meant that we have remained competitive. So I think we have to own that and have those and have and, and yeah, and that's why I think there's some level of accountability. And also it is our, you know, we're, we're the, you know, it's our mission. Our mission is to do the job, transform communities, support communities, etc. We have to look at donors as a community as well. It just happens to be the community with the resources. So the same way, my argument is the same uh, learning capability uh, development that we have preached for so long. At, you know, that's facing predominantly of the you know of the global south, and even and even that's a question whether it's a true global south geographically. But that same development that's happening there has to turn around and also just provide learning and capabilities on the other way and to and in fairness there's also much that the donors particularly the private sector can can also provide in the form of of training to the third sector right so multinationals may have some ideas of how to streamline processes to ensure that they that we're communicating as well as we can with our counterparts who are in multiple parts of the world and that's easy and that's easy for a big corporate right if it's their specialism and the impact of that within an, a non-profit. But if the, this is, is this a question of value? What the, what the non-profit sector has valued for so long is cash is as lightly restricted cash as possible. And if, you know, if we start, you know, it's talked about smaller organizations, you know, not being able, not having the time to, to put together a massive application, you know, sort of shifting the idea of what we value and need, having a deep understanding of the resources beyond cash, time, expertise, tech. And, and this, is, this is something that I, I think we, we've had conversations about before, but, but things about you know, the impact that something like a corporate, a smartly built corporate partnership that has a broad sense, a holistic sense of value in terms of what can be leveraged for the nonprofit rather than just going in with sort of cash, you know, the dollar signs in our eyes. And you've seen that before on many occasions. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I just, yeah, I, I think in, in many ways it's just, um, it's yeah, it's a cultural question, I, 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 I think. I think it's a, if I've understood the question correctly, I think it's a, within the third sector, it's very much a, a cultural question as right maybe I, sh I should pull back a little bit i think we we come from a place of um at least from a third sector standpoint there's an element of you know my, of, of wanting to save the world right wanting to just do good so it's not really just oh the business and what's most efficient and understanding the, the different bottlenecks to that i think a lot of it because we're coming from that world of you know knowledge can only come from one place. Knowledge can only be, you know, the, what's replicating can only come from one place. I think we go into it with very little expectation of what our counterparts are able to provide. And I think that's probably less so for a 
private company. I think for a private company, it's very clear where the value add is coming in across yeah. the wider wide, and there's less hangups, right? But I um, and there's um, there's a, there's a sense of I think I mean I haven't worked for a private company, but I but what I've picked up is there's a sense of oh yeah, you can be a professional and ex, and an expert from you know regardless of where you where you sat, right? You know, there's a there's an element of also yeah. or some somewhat standard standardizing what what a professional person is within that wider institution. I think that's less so within the third sector. I think there's 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 the hang up of who is a custodian of information of real agency to change. If if I've understood the question correctly. Yeah. It, yeah, sorry, it wasn't very clear. <laughs> My question. No, man, we're, we're in the flow state, man. We're, we're, it's a good conversation. If you're enjoying this conversation and would like to hear other global perspectives on fundraising and leadership in the nonprofit sector, then please do subscribe using the links in the show notes. If you want to find out more about our work, please do visit our website, fundraisingradicals.com. Now, back to the conversation. But the culture, but I see this all the time, okay? I, I, I see sort of corporate culture clashing with nonprofit sector all the time, that whether it's sort of a, a charity hiring somebody who has transferable skills, but they don't sort of have that program of transferring those skills over to the nonprofit sector, suddenly working with these scarce resources, with these deeply passionate people who care so much about their work or when it comes to a partnership you know the sense of actually what we're trying to get from this charity is is hugely beneficial to our brand so we're going to give them fifty thousand dollars and we're going to take sort of ten million dollars worth of brand value from this partnership so you know you've worked on some massive corporate partnerships right (laughs) Uh, complex when it comes to that sort of culture difference, how do you navigate that? And, and how, what, what does best practice look like when it comes to building partnerships with companies? Right. So I, I think the main one, the, the, the key thing is, is shared values. You have to align, as you said, you have to align those values. You have to have an understanding of what you're getting out of it and not just as an organization but what the community that you work with is getting out of it and you also have to have clarity on what the organization uh, that's supporting you will get out of it i think that allows you it gives you a bit more not leverage but it gives you it it provides you a a strong place to start the conversation so when i share again when i say things like shared values there's a lot of people who assume that what does that mean that's abstract it means that you can ask the question you know if you're a multinational you know, and we're uh, we're an organization that works with Community X. And by working with us, yes, fantastic. You allow us to fulfill our mission and do the work, but also it provides you access to a particular market. Let's be clear. That's not why we're getting into yeah. bed with you, but we recognize, yeah. is, is, that, is that the right... Is that the right technical term? Yeah. That's not why we're, we're jumping into the partnership with you, but we recognize that, it, that there's a benefit. So we have to, we, there has to be some rules of engagement, right? So what is it that you, A, you will expect of us? But also, yeah, what, 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 how are you assigning value to that, right? And in many ways, in many ways, 
even if that doesn't translate to we give you more money, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be that. But it can provide you with this idea that, well, I know that you're in it for the longer term, right? And you can say that. You can say, you know, it's good. It's good that you're not just giving me a, you know, some income or resources just purely from for altruistic purposes. Because actually, if there is a sense of business value for you, direct indirectly indirectly because i don't think there's any organizations that will partner with an organization to help another organization make profit i hope not but if there's that indirect benefit then actually it means it's it's a more it should be it should feel like a more mutually respectful relationship and i i have found at least in the last 11 years that those have been the most successful partnerships that i've been involved in now we've been clear from the onset we're not going to jeopardize our integrity or risk the mission or jeopardize our reputation but we recognize that there is same some value to you by being a, a partner yeah. and in many ways this is also what the communities are saying right this is also what the communities are saying this is what if you you know you speak to colleagues within the continent this is what they will say they say listen we're, we're trying to move past just aid we want to be involved in in business, we want to be around the table. So let's find those, and let's find those things that are those mutual, mutually beneficial touch points. Much as we recognize that the funding may come in the form of a grant, let's find those mutual touch points so that you, we, you because whether we say it or not say it, a lot of organizations, a lot of institutions will be will be getting. Yeah. There is a benefit. Of course. To being part of those missions, and whether that's that you know, as as you and I have discussed in the past, there are stakeholders asking more of them, uh, whether they're trying to cost correct, whether they're trying to you know to, to to learn more about a particular market. There is some value, and there's I think the best, some of the more stronger partnerships that I've been involved in have been able to mention those and have a have an open conversations and then draw the lines around what will. What, you know what one partner can do and what the other partner cannot do and, and you open conversations right those that communication is so important if you have that values foundation and having and building that trust and are able to communicate honestly and effectively and actually these can become quite enjoyable this is one of the values you know that i talk about quite a lot it, with people who are who are building corporate partnerships is it's about the energy you know, when you're walking into that room to have your next meeting, uh, what's the energy? Are you enjoying this? Is everybody enjoying this? And I think that's a, you know, a great measure, but also as discomfort is, is this partnership pushing you beyond your own comfort zone? Is it helping you to achieve something that you couldn't otherwise? And I think that's when they become really interesting. And I think that's when they become deeply innovative and and really start challenging and and creating change. Exactly, exactly. And, and as you say, you know, that in itself is the value add that you can walk in as the friend, but also the critical friend and shed some light on, you know, on a blind side that another part, you know, that the partner might have. Right. But really, I mean, you know, when I speak to younger people who sort of ask the question, you know, you've been involved in those partnerships, you know, what are some of the things that you need to think about? Essentially, you know, my messaging is usually very, very straightforward is, you know, when you look at a brand, you know, yes, you know, there's that brand value around it, but also just think about that that's driven by people, you know. So aim to build strong, trusting, respectful 
relationships with those people and you will go a long way. You, you know, where, where I've had the opportunity to be invited in, whether it's Barclays, where, you know, uh, or whether it's a garden, where I've, you know, or GSK, where I've built stronger relationships. Those are the partnerships where I have felt that I have learned most from, that I have had also the opportunity to provide most information and learning to, and just really, really strong relationships. There are other partnerships where it's very transactional. And I think that remains when you only look at the brand and you and you don't take the time and you say, oh, well, actually, you know, my project looks like it aligns with what they have, make the application, and then you almost have no interaction between that and the next cycle. That's not, re- you know, you can call it a partnership and you can have it on your website and, and say we have a, a partner and they might do the same when it's, you know, when it serves, but it's not really... You know, partnerships is about those relationships. It's a missed opportunity, though, right? It's a it's a massive missed opportunity. And and but but I think it also I think many organisations are sort of overwhelmed with the ideas of, of corporates and and building corporate partnerships. It's, it's often easier to see it as this sort of monolithic organisation when when they're so much more complex than that. It, and and some of the you know things I talk about on 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 the program and the course is. is is about viewing corporates rather as sort of overlapping communities of people. You know, you have all the, the complexity and, and, you know, a company essentially is just a piece of paper, right? It's a piece of paper signed saying, these are the directors, we accept fiscal and legal responsibility. Yeah. Beyond that, you know, it's a, it's an office space, but then it's the communities of people and how you, and you're with your comms background as well, hugely helpful to understand how you motivate, engage, uh, and inspire these individual different communities within companies to engage with you. Is that is that your experience? Absolutely. And it really just, yeah, again, speaks to my initial point around, yeah, seeing donors as, as different communities in the same way, and, and hence why we have to be open to providing learning. Yeah, but I, I absolutely agree. I think it really, really goes a long way and, and again you know once you've built up some of those relationships you know if you when you have the opportunity that also allows you to really understand the different dynamics not different from how you would interact with a community where you're implementing the program as you say it will be the complexities it will be different stakeholders it will be different views different motivations within the same community it re- it's, it's there's a replication of that when you look at a corporate partner, right? You know, you have a chat and they say, well, our team understands. And all donors. All donors. Our team understands this. We support your cause. But uh, so, in, but this particular group, their motivation is different. But this is how we can navigate that. And you learn so, so much. And that allows you to progress the conversation. So you're absolutely spot on. Of course, the initial, an initial interaction has to be based on the, the, the values around the brand itself. Is that someone that I can partner with or is it that misaligned with what I would be supporting Grant? You know, but once you move past that, yeah, you're well within the community. It is your job as a relationships person, fundraiser, communications person, chief executive to now understand, okay, this is the community that I'm interacting with. What is the best way for me to communicate to them? What's the best way for me to be understood? What is the best way for me to get the best out of this relationship? Right. And, and I, that's the job. Right. And I think suspend your goal to get money for a second. 
you know, which again sounds really counterintuitive, you know, but yeah, suspend, you've walked in, suspend, I need them to give me a million. Focus on how do I make this community understand why I'm here? How do I get them to understand, at the very least, understand my mission? And how do I then generate some enthusiasm around what we could potentially do together to achieve and pursue that mission? That that then will lead you to to, to the money. But I think typically what tends to happen is people start with the, with the dollar signs, you know, and maybe this was your previous question. They start with, ooh, company X, you know, I've, I've been told by my colleague who works for a different organization that they got 500K from them last year. I think we can get 500K. We're very, you know, that's the wrong place to start. And to be fair, as you said, the energy translates. Yeah. People will recognize very quickly if they feel that, oh, you're just having this quick conversation with me so that I can ask you for a concept at the end of the conversation. And then it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. I th- you get a much better reaction when people feel you're passionate about what you do. You're credible in doing it. Is there room for us to take this conversation forward? Not, not. It's not different from relationships with <laughs> people anyway, That's right? right. <laughs> you, you know, you, it's no different from your first date, from your first conversation. You know, no matter your intentions, you, you know, on your first date, you can't. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe you can. You can't just rock up and just say. Hey, I want to marry you in much that you might think that that's what the person wants to hear or what they might be looking for. It is just not what you do. You're there to be understood and more so you're there to understand that the person and then just see whether there's, you know, whether, whether there's something there and you have to just let things evolve and, and, and yeah, and learn. And that learning about one another and why you're there should, is what determines whether it's a thing or not. Yeah. Right. Rather than coming in with all these yeah. sort of uh, massive intentions and asks and 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 thinking that being deliberate will get you there quicker. Yes. So it, it's 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 leaving the space, creating the space, patience, openness to learning, rather than having that endpoint already in your mind, because that is, and I I say this a lot, is that if you focus on the funding, you close off so many other opportunities and doors that you just don't know are there. Absolutely spot on. I mean, when I get a chance and I've had a great conversation with people and they think, you know, what can we do? You know, typically my answer will be very, very close to that. You know, you know, they say, oh, practically what, you know, but what what, what can we, what can we do to to support? You say, you know, it it could be resources, it could be your networks, it could be your technical expertise. It could just be advice, right? And mostly, you know, if an organization is more a resourcing organization, they might feel that actually that's where they could add the most value. But also, we're now in, um, you know, I've just been involved in a partnership where a partner has introduced us and brokered a relationship with another partner. And I thought that's absolutely amazing. That amazing because that, as you say, is a lost opportunity. If you're working with a massive multinational, just think of all the relationships they have outside of themselves, right? Their suppliers, their competitors, you know, they, that is a whole world that could be uh, open to you. But if you just focus on a particular call and a particular call only and you don't, be, you don't take the time to create that space to explore 
other areas, then you miss out. It, and it could be very, it's very short term. Mm. So with the partnership that I supported in my role with the with with previously, where I was managing um, um, the relationship with GSK, it just evolved yeah. and evolved and evolved and evolved and evolved. And a lot of that was that openness to exploring how, you know, what else, not just the needs on the ground, although that was a significant part of it, but also, you know, what could strengthen the marriage? You know, what else could we, what else could we do that would add value to the work that we've already done previously or to the work that we might do in the future? And it just... And, and it gets to the point where you're just, where you just sort of connected at that point. You know, sort of blooms from that. Right. And, and, and then you're just going to progress yeah. together. And I think that's hugely exciting when, when, when corporate partnerships reach that level of, of trust, maturity and impact because that just grows as as you progress together. Yeah. Steve, this is I feel like I could talk to you for another sort of three hours. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. Same here. I mean, I will say this so that it doesn't sound uh, that it's just, you know, a bed of roses. Yeah. And if you just do these things that, you know, Craig and Steve are saying, it's going to, to work out. I mean, I think in many ways there will be situations that are f- frustrating. I think in many, in sometimes, you know, there will be partners that won't, won't get it. And that's fine. I think, you know, I've, I'm, you know, I'm experiencing one right now where there will be organizations that are more closed, yeah. right? So they're more, uh, they prefer a, a more traditional way of doing things. So you only have contact with very few people and they, you know, and they, they're not open to the exploration, right? But don't, don't be disheartened. I think, you know, that if, if nothing else, recognize that those exist, but the other ones that are open to conversations also exist. Lean into those because I think it's, it's, you know, it, it, it's it's worth the while. It's it's definitely worth the while. And it's yeah, thinking about patience because you know when when people change as well, you don't know what sort of three or four years down the line. Yeah. Uh, for for those more traditional ones, sometimes it's a case of acceptance, but it's really thinking, taking that sort of portfolio approach and really valuing your time and and thinking kind of very clearly about what the best use of that precious resource is when it comes to building partnerships because partnerships and, and chasing partnerships can just swallow all of your resource. Uh, but it, but it's interesting, but if you, if I guess what you said earlier is about, you know, starting with values and if that, you know, you discover that and have having those open conversations about values right at the start, you'll discover that about your corporate partnerships faster, whether they prefer this communication or whether they're closed, whether they're more traditional or whether they are more progressive, interested in, in, in a whole other range of things. But it also requires a deep understanding of who you are as an organization and what you need and what you want to achieve. So I guess it always comes back to that clarity of mission yeah. and absolute focus, but also understanding the sort of largely the areas where you can collaborate and innovate. Absolutely. And the confidence and the conf- everything you've said. So I won't repeat that because it's super, super clear. And it's the confidence. And it's the confidence to be able to walk away with those, you know, from those, you know, relationships that you know won't serve, won't get you to the mission quicker. If anything, they might get in the way, right? And this goes back to my argument around being a malleable, agile organization is there's this less restrictions to you turning around and saying, no, that's not for us. Because then there's, you know, perhaps there's less core costs over here. So there's a lot less that's that's forcing you to go into relationships and partnerships that actually don't serve the mission and don't serve 
who you truly are, right? So I think that's 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 critical for an organization to have that confidence. I think, you know, in my previous role, that was one of the arguments I made quite often. You know, we have to be, you know, A, don't constantly feel that your pipeline needs to reflect a new partner that you're pursuing each quarter, each six months. You know, sometimes leaning into those people that you, you know, those warm relationships, those partners that you already have a good understanding of, spending more time yeah. investing in those is 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 more beneficial but i think sometimes we fall because of the lack of confidence yeah. i would say because we we're, we're worried oh if that falls through then you know what happens you start to lose your position so you spend so much time trying to pursue a new partner and a new partner and actually it would have been better off for you to focus on those those that you'd already aligned your values with and also just being in a position to just say no right being in a position to to say no i think as a third sector we don't exist to just remain viable much as that's critical right you cannot put the you know just the organization ahead of the mission you have to you have to balance you have to balance you you have to remember as you say be true to your existence and and to why you're there. And I'm always cautious when I say that as a chief exec, because I don't want anybody to panic. Like, oh, you know, he's just going to be, you know, passion, passion is, in itself is not going to pay no. the bills. I <laughs> yeah, get of it. Of you course. have to manage the business. You're not doing any of this foolishly. It's not uh, sticking your finger in the air. But it is having those core principles when you're making those uh, critical decisions about where you spend your time. That's such, a, that's such an important but hard to find thing for so many organizations, confidence. Because, and, and, and I see it all the time uh, in terms of the confident organizations are the one that take this deeply organic approach to fundraising, whether it's sort of with wealthy individuals, whether it's with institutions, whether it's with corporates. And, and the investment of that time, the belief that I'm going to put my time into this and grow this because we don't, and, and the that takes a huge amount of confidence that many organizations that's beyond many organizations so but it's but it's an incredible thing to aim for and and i think that it sort of dispels the myth that there's all these donors out there and that they're better they're going to provide you with the funding because that is again focusing on the funding but if you look inside and at those closest to you and think how can i inspire engage motivate the people the organizations that are already connected to us, it's probably for most organizations going to deliver the most funding, the most stability, and the most exciting innovation, creative opportunities for the future. Right. And again, that mirrors the work that you would do with uh, with the communities, which is my mantra. This is always my, my, my thing. You know, we don't, you know, the worlds don't exist as separately as we think they do. No, of course It's the not. same way you work with communities. The idea isn't to be in all the communities, just just touch and go, trying to work out which... That's not how you do it. You, you want to focus on the depth of the relationships and your work with, these, with the communities. It's exactly... You mirror that on the other side. It's a more impactful way to work right and it also just you know it just allows you to plan better i've been in situations where you walk in and the pipeline is the longest list prospects right you know this uh, and you say well what is the you know let's work out what the likelihood of this is. you only work out with like you end up with a, you know it's a list of about 40 and it's only about five or six where there's actual something so you know and you sort of have to say well 
you do realize that, you know, first of all, the list becomes misleading because then you think it gives you a sense of it's a misdirection. You, you think, oh, I've got all these opportunities, but you really don't, you know. And actually, you compromise the six where you have, you know, a really good shot by chasing all these other ones where actually if you maximize your effort on the six, you'll probably end up in a good place. Also, then it just allows you to plan better because you can say, well, actually, in terms of really the income that I'm expecting, it's probably you know, around the six rather than the 20. So you don't invest in other areas that you you might not, you might not be able to cover just because it was never realistic to begin with, right? So, and you do, you realize, correct, there's so many organizations that, you know, that will budget on the basis of, you know, just that, what's in their pipeline and not just the income that they, that's, that's certain, right? And then that's how you also end up in a situation where you're trying to fill where those gaps exists just to remain viable and it becomes it's, it becomes that you know you're just constantly chasing you're constantly chasing but yeah there's there's many there's many things to consider but I, I think if there's anybody out there who's listening and they're struggling hey we're all struggling number one right so you don't you know don't feel alone even with all this information and all this uh sort of uh, uh experience it is it is tough out there it, it, it's um uh, building relationships take, takes time it's daunting and but, you know, you know, there are those core things that, you know, you, you and I have been talking about. And I think those will serve you well, right? And just be open, open to the learning and just know, you know, that this is the job. It's the mission, right? This is, uh, it shouldn't be as difficult. This is where we're hope. This is, this is why I suppose you, you, you're doing this, Craig, and I commend you for it. It is to try and break that barrier that it shouldn't be that this difficult uh, for for organizations that are doing good work and having real impact on the ground to get to mobilize resources or to go through a process of mobilizing resources. It, sh it really shouldn't be so complicated, much as resources are scarce in the world. I think there are those people out there that really, really want to, to support organizations and missions, and we just need to declutter our processes and our, and our mindset and and, and we need to collaborate more. That's the other thing. I think with just within the sector, we need to collaborate more and we need to find those best practices and try and replicate and educate the donors. It will, it will serve us in the, in the future. Uh, but I, I thought I should say that just because, in case anybody thinks like, oh, he's so lucky, man. He's, you know, sounds like he's got it down, doesn't have to worry. No, it's, it, is, it, is, it is very, very, it's very, very, it, it, is, it is daunting. It's daily effort, right? You put, put, we put our shoulders to that boulder every day and this is i think at the heart of fundraising and partnership when you put your shoulder to the boulder every day and just push and you yeah. show up you show up every day yeah and you push a little more push a little more yeah. and sometimes it suddenly starts rolling for a bit sometimes it rolls back on you but yeah. It, yeah. it's i think it's it's showing up and being there and the consistency you have a huge amount of determination grit and resilience steve it's one of the things that i've always admired about you where what role does that play and and where does that come from where how do you you know revive yourself and and, and keep your energy i i have soon re I've, I've more recently realized that i'm very obsessive actually i think that's the i don't know where that i don't know i don't know where that that came from but actually i can trace it to my younger days you know, I have this friend once, and this always rings in my ear when I have when when the, when I think about this. I remember him saying to me, "I don't know. We were tr we were trying, 
we were trying to get the car going, but for some reason it just wasn't working. And I was sat there for literally a whole hour just doing the same thing over and over. And then, it, and then we just, and then it just worked, right? I didn't do anything different to what everybody else was doing. And I, and I remember his name is Martin. You know, I grew up, you know, when I was in, in Nairobi, yeah, we, we, we grew up in the same estate. And he said, he's like, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you're struggling with something and you want something, just somebody just do it, just give it to this, you know, give it to Steve because he would just keep doing it. And and I think that that's partly it. Just do me. the same thing over yeah. and over and over yeah. again. Yeah. I, th- I think partly it is that, is it's that obsession. I'm now recently, you and I had this chat more recently about running, right? I get into it and, yeah. and I get in, ex- excited about it and I just obsess, you know? So I think there's an, there's a personality there that has worked well. But of course, you know, that is with no, you know, it doesn't come with it without its drawbacks, right? Because sometimes when you're obsessing about whatever it is that you're obsessing about at the time, it can take you away from, other things that you have to be doing. So it's something that I have to to observe. But I do think that's that's one of the things I'm learning slowly. I can I can now start to see it in in in, in my nine year old as well. You know, it's just like once she, she latches onto something, it's just like go go go. And I'm like, it's probably good for you if you if you if you if you get the right thing and, and it's something that you care passionately yeah passionately about. And and I and I, I so I think I think that's a personality trait. We'll see, you know, when 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 I'm eighty, if I make it to eighty, and I look back, whether I think that was a good thing or a bad thing, we're, we're yet to see. To see, I think the the other thing I have learned, however, and this is just learning from people yourself, Craig, other people that I look up to, is this idea of actually the difference between those people that really succeed in whatever it is, right? Whether it's a partnership, fundraising, whether it's just the job, whether it's whatever you're chasing, is just not giving up. It's exactly what you've just said now. You know, it's just showing up and pushing against the boulder. It's, it's like running. It's, it's just this concept. If you look critically at those people that have done, you know, they're all in the same, they're, they're all in the same industry. It helps to be skilled. It helps to have talent. But the, but the biggest, I think, uh, variable, the most significant variable, in my eyes at least, and again, I might be proven wrong by as I live longer, is just this idea of not quitting that you just show up just show up and just and just and just do it because in your showing up you 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 are as you say it's great you're pushing against whatever obstacle is there but also you're learning you pick up something different on yeah. the next day and you're like oh i could i could if i adjust that it felt better and then you and then you do it again and then you improve and then you get better and better and better so i think that's probably i get a lot of satisfaction from that you know and you know, I, I can trace it in almost anything I've done. When I was doing photography, you know, I would sit there on the on the dining table with with my laptop editing image for hours, man, hours. You know, and I look back now. See, now the problem is I can no longer do it now. But your, but I remember your photography. You're very modest, but your photographs are beautiful. But see, the problem is, Craig, I I can't do it now because now I'm out of that obsession and on to the next one. There's almost ah. a sense of like, oh, you know, can can I still do it? But it but it, it was that. I think I think that's it. In terms of where I get my energy from, I, I don't know. I think I think having you know having a, a strong foundation at home, I think that really really helps. I think being reminded, especially you know, you will know this as, as a dad. You know, watching watching the kids, it will, they will slow you down. I think they will slow you down, and they will. That will make you question a lot of things. That I think that's I think that's useful. I think they remind you what's important. But also, I mean, if I'm I'm honest, if I'm really, 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 truly honest with you, Craig, I think there is a there's all, almost always a sense of not guilt, but there's almost a sense of 
because because of where sort of all, all my experiences and sort of maybe where I started as a human, there's almost this sense of, oh, you know, you've had an opportunity and you can't, you, you know, you have to make sure that you utilize that to the best of your ability to change it for the other, you know, your former self, those those people that may be in the same yeah. situations and they haven't had the same opportunities as you. Yeah, they just haven't navigated things in the in the same way. There is there's always a little bit of of guilt there. If, if I'm absolutely honest, there's always a sense that oh, you know, you know, the, the the plan is for you to keep that door open and to open other doors and and don't forget you know where you're coming from and just how phenomenal you know just how lucky you are, right? I mean, it's two thousand and 23 you can order food from your couch and i'm not saying that this is ex- uh, um you know th- th- this isn't uh, um, exclusive to any part of the world because you can do this in, in nairobi but you know there will be some there will be those of us that enjoy that right now and yet there will still be a pregnant woman somewhere that can't access care you know there will still be a child with asthma and the parents just don't know what to do because they simply is in support and i think those so when I when I think of those those people, it's, it's for me. It's, it, I'm very restless. It, it gets me. It becomes very very restless. And I think this is why, much as I'm, you know, sometimes you, I'm hit by oh I can't, you know, I'm, I'm here. There's, there's there's a sense of empowerment that comes with oh yeah, you are here. So you know, do the job, do the do the thing. You know, remember remember why you do it. So yeah, that, that's yeah. probably it. No, if, um, I'd say that's a that's an amazing set of motivations yeah steve it's been an absolute pleasure as always it's it's always wonderful to hear your views your perspectives your ideas so thank you you you, you're welcome you're welcome thank you for yeah i mean thank you for the opportunity to have a chat today but i mean craig you're being modest right i mean and and i I suspect you have to be i suppose as 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 the person who's hosting uh you know the podcast but you know you you've been a great support to me you remember I won't share your stories. I won't. I won't share the cycling, the, the all the things that we <laughs> in Uganda and uh, what's the what's the English phrase? You you missed near missed whatever it is. You're getting almost run over by trucks. Near misses, yeah. In, in Uganda yeah, and, yeah. and us rushing to to the hospital and a lot of Red Bulls and conversations as as we drove around and worried about the Katina project and where we were headed. So you know, so you, yeah, you've been a great support for a really, really, really long time. So that in itself, you know, this is what I mean by uh, the opportunity and um, and support by by people and just really striking uh, warm, sincere relationships that you that can carry you through life. So I'm really, really grateful for that and for your amazing work. And even as a trustee of, you know, AMREF in the UK, af- you know, a few years after and just, and what you're doing now, you know, I said to my, you know, to my team, the other day I'm having a chat with, you know, he's a colleague, but also, you know, really respect the work that, the, you know, that Craig is doing, trying to uh, support fundraisers from all over the world. So this is, you know, just saying, well, if you're, if you're in Kenya, if you're in Uganda, if you're in Liberia, you know, how can we support you to generate those funds directly? Because again, that's how getting those resources directly is the most effective way to do the job. So you're supporting, you're supporting the cause in many different ways. So I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity to chat to you today. Really grateful for all the other conversations we've had over the years. And, you know, I wish you all the best, you know, and you, you yeah, you, you give me a shout anytime when you want these crazy ideas to be aired, 
you know, outside of that, yeah, give me a shout anyway, so we can talk about everything else. Of course, I want to talk. I want to talk to you again tomorrow because <laughs> it's just it's always so inspiring. Your your views, your honesty, your integrity, your experience is so is so helpful and just and and I, and I just love your commitment and I and I love this idea at the core of what you were talking about, about taking what we're learning and know about how to build exceptional partnerships and listen to donors and reflect that to how we work with communities. I think that's a phenomenal lesson for, for, for that everyone can take from this. Thank you so much, Steve. Absolutely. Asante, 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 Sana. Thank you so much for the time. Take care. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Fundraising Radicals podcast and that this conversation has challenged, informed, and maybe even inspired you and your fundraising leadership practice. Please do check out the show notes, subscribe to the podcast on the platform of your choice, and do visit fundraisingradicals.com to find out all the ways in which we're working to empower, equip, and engage fundraisers all over the world. 